started. Hey, uh, Happy New Year, everyone. I'm glad that you're back, those of you that are here. A couple of people that aren't here today let me know it's because they were sick, and, uh, but they were bummed that they had to miss today. Because today, we're starting new study. So, to recap, for those of you long-timers, we've gone through Genesis, year and a half. Saw the whole story. Exodus. Spent all of 2015 in Exodus. 2016, Leviticus. This is the part where people groan. And they say, ah, I don't think I can come this week. Oh, I'm not feeling too good. I don't know if I should stay. Nonsense. This is the one I'm looking forward to as much as any. The main reason is because, and if you follow on social media, those of you on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, um, I post every week a little reminder with a picture of this study and then upload a picture in the audio to the podcast. And, uh, so just, I want to remind you of that. So let people know if they can't come, if they can't be here for a week, or they're going to miss a week or two. Every week, like you can go on the website, so jamsmith.org, store, audio. That's the link. Go to the store section, resources, go to audio archive. There's three ways to follow along. YouTube, for people that like to watch the video, that's what the camera's for. Also, I upload the podcast, the audio version, to SoundCloud and iTunes. So if you're a Galaxy user, if you're an iPhone user, whatever, put the app on your phone for free, and then every week you can get the uh, audio from this study every week on your phone. So you can't make it a week? That's fine. On Wednesday, take a lunch break, press play, listen to it for 30 minutes. You can follow along, and the beauty of it is, you get to hear my melodious voice. No, the beauty of it is you don't miss a week in the study. And what we're doing is we're laying the foundation. It's not like a topical study. Those of you that have come for a long time, you know this. It's not a topical study. We don't bounce around all over the Bible. We go through, we read through the books as they were written. And so if you miss a week, sometimes you miss a pretty important thing. And I try to jump back and you know reiterate things often to kind of keep it fresh. But it's helpful to be able to go back. It's also helpful to tell people if they're interested or if you're telling them about it, say, yeah, hey, just you know, take 25 minutes and listen to the message. And that's what it's like. Only you get Ruth's Chris food for free as well. So it's a win-win. Uh, but we really want to continue to get the word out because this is the primary outreach ministry of my ministry, Disciple Dojo partnering with Roots with Jeff Conway, the owner. This is like my weekly thing and I love it. And I love having you guys here and, and more people. And Jeff and I both want to see it continue to grow and to serve the needs of this community. I want to let you know about a second leg of my ministry school, so to speak, uh, that's just starting this year. Last year, at the very end of last year, we did a little test run to see how it worked and it was received really well. So this year we're trying to, uh, to go for it. But basically, for those of you who don't know, when I'm not teaching the Bible, I do martial arts, I do jiu-jitsu. And one of the things that I've been really passionate about is, is the people from all over the world that come here to Charlotte, that end up in Charlotte, from displaced places, from war zones, and from not just the Middle East, but from all over, Africa, Southeast Asia. Charlotte has a large refugee population. And there's ministries in Charlotte, evangelical, evangelical, biblically-based ministries, and their sole purpose is to help these refugee families that end up here get assimilated into the community, to help them have all the things that we take for granted, you know, just access to basic needs, services, you know, helping them with their English to get better, all that stuff. They do really cool stuff. So Uptown, a ministry off of Central Avenue called Project 658, uh, I'm teaming up with them, and on 
Thursdays, I'm going to be offering a free, Thursday evenings, a free jiu-jitsu class for the kids, for refugee kids, the you know, middle school, high school, elementary school, that don't have access to after school sports or, or things like that. I'm going to be going up there and teaching every week using the, the, the martial arts and, and the camaraderie and the competition and all that stuff that's built into that to help build bridges for these kids, not only to give them self-defense skills and confidence, but also to create a uh, community among them, with me, with the uh, Charlotte martial arts community as well, and just with the community in general. We're gonna do, uh, hopefully do monthly women's self-defense workshops and sexual assault rape prevention type seminars and things like that. So it's a part of the outreach that I'm really excited about, and I'm about $1,700 away from what I need to kind of get it going in terms of getting the mats down so we can train safely and getting some equipment, things like that. So for the beginning of the year, all of my resource sales, DVDs, books, videos, online stuff, it's all gonna be going towards that to get this program started, Refugee Jiu-Jitsu uh, for these kids. And they're awesome. If you go on my blog, I just did a blog post and a whole picture album. Uh, had a girl from Charlotte One photographer come in and do pictures of us training with the kids. And they're awesome pictures. I mean, the kids are just like smiling as they're elbowing me in the face and you know, <laughs> laughing when we're like choking each other. It, it's just, it's great to see the joy on these kids' faces and just the fun that they're having um, that, that I've known all my life. And so I want to help share with them. So that's what you're interested in. If that piques your interest or you're like, oh, I know a business that maybe you want to throw 100 bucks your way or something like that, please let me know, contact me, because I'm really, the next two, three weeks, I'm trying to push to get this final uh, $1,700 or $1,800 or so raised. So, that said, Leviticus, the book of the Bible, you're all excited and chomping at the bits to study, right? Who in here has ever read through the entire book of Leviticus? Raise your hand. All right, like six, seven of them, maybe. Uh, who in here, be honest, who in here has never heard of the book? <laughs> okay, heard of it. Who's, who's heard of it but has never actually read it? Or read a verse here or there? Yeah, okay. I love it. So, Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. Alright? The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus is literally the heart. It's the middle of the five books, the center book. It all takes place in a month. All the events of Leviticus, the entire book, takes place over a period of one month. It's this hardcore, intensive, month-long training period that God uh, instills to his people. Check this out. With, with your Bible, turn to the New Testament. The New Testament is that part of the Bible we never study. It's in the back. I say we in this Bible study because we've done Old Testament only. But... If you turn in your New Testament to the book of 1 Peter, so that's sort of near the back, before you get to Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, Peter wrote two letters. Peter, like Jesus' right-hand guy. He wrote two letters. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, the very beginning of his letter, Peter's writing to believers all over the Roman Empire. Jews and Gentiles, faith in Jesus, the, the, the kingdom is spreading, Christianity is, is, is rising on the scene. Peter, the apostles are teaching and preaching and planting churches. And so Peter writes a letter to all of these churches throughout the Gentile nation, throughout the Gentile world, Roman Empire. And he says, down in chapter 13, start, or chapter, verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, he starts talking about holiness. Now Peter is talking to people 
who were raised in, you know, like Cappadocia or Bithia or uh, Asia Minor or Rome, all of these places all over. He's writing to them. And this is what he says to them. He says, verse 13, uh, back up, excuse me, verse 12, it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but you, and they spoke with things that have now been told to you by those who preached the gospel to you. He's talking about Old Testament people and prophets that have come before. He says, those of you who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. So he's talking about just this, this the, the gospel that they're hearing and that they're learning and they're walking in is something that the, even the angels have longed to look into for so many ages because it's it's been foretold, it's been uh, anticipated for literally millennia. And he's writing, he's saying, now you are living it. You're walking in it. This thing that has been longed for, this, this new covenant is what he's talking about that's been prophesied from long ago. And then he says, verse 13, therefore, so because of all this, prepare your minds for action. He's, and literally that phrase is, gird the loins of your minds. It's like girding your loins as people walk around in robes and when you need to fight or run, you can't do that in robes. So you'd actually pull the robe up, tie it around your waist and make like a diaper kind of thing. And then you could fight in it or run in it. That's what girding your loins is. So he basically says, do that, but do it to your minds. In other words, get your minds ready for action, which is why the NIV says prepare. Uh, but that's not nearly as interesting. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, before you knew about the kingdom of God, before you were a servant of the Messiah, that's how you live? Okay. Don't live that way. There's a change that, that should happen. There should be a change that takes place when the gospel is preached and accepted. If it's not, that means the gospel has not penetrated the person's heart, has not uh, found purchase within the good soil, and there's no transformation because there's no gospel obedience. But where there is gospel obedience, where there is transformation, that's the sign of a new life, and he's encouraging that. He's saying, continue in that, be that. Verse 14, um, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had and lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And he goes on and on to say why. But right in the middle of that, be holy for I am holy. Where does that come from? That comes from the very center of the book of Leviticus. That comes from the holiness covenant in Leviticus. When Peter wants to tell his Gentile Christians how to think about it, he references Leviticus. Why? Because they knew Leviticus. They didn't have the letters of Paul. Well, they had some of his letters, maybe. They didn't have the Gospels. They didn't have a New Testament. They had the Old Testament. So when he wants to make a point about being holy, he references the heart of Leviticus, the holiness code, as almost like an offhand or a shorthand way of saying, you know how it goes, be holy. And he just references Leviticus. Jesus, so Peter's not a good enough authority. Let's go with the guy that taught Peter. So in Matthew, first gospel, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is being asked questions in the temple, getting quizzed. 
trying to catch him, trying to see who is this guy teaching. And this is this is at the end. Like this is Matthew at the culmination of his gospel. Jesus will say this, and he'll say a few more things, and then he'll get arrested. So at, at the height of his teaching, when his teaching ministry is about to come to a close, and his passion ministry is about to begin. Chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 34. After Jesus already silenced one group of what we would call today haters, if you're a kid, uh, one group of critics, in verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which happened earlier, the Pharisees, this is a group of Pharisees were just holy, righteous people that were striving to make Israel come back to God. The Pharisees wanted to take back their nation for God. I mean, they were the equivalent of modern-day conservatives in that regard. They, they were like, we as a nation have strayed from God. We need to go back to God. That's why they were so, Pharisees weren't just busybodies. They didn't follow Jesus around because they were grumpy or curmudgeonly or they didn't want people having fun. The Pharisees saw we're living in exile in our own land but not ruling ourselves. Rome is oppressing us. We aren't living according to the law as a people. So we need to get our act together and turn back to the covenant. That's what the Pharisees believed. That's why they were so rigorous about seeming lawbreakers, people that would break Torah, people that would disobey the covenant, or would do things that in their eyes looked like disobeying the covenant, which is what Jesus' actions were. They would come down on them, not for, because they were killjoys, but because they realized that the nation was at stake. They realized that the heart of the nation was, was headed towards destruction if they didn't turn back to God. That's what motivated the Pharisees. It's unfortunate that in English the word Pharisee has come to mean hypocrite because not all Pharisees were hypocrites and at Pentecost thousands of Pharisees came to faith because they realized this is what we've been longing for. This is the way to have what we want happen, people turning back to God. So it's important to remember that about the Pharisees. They get a bad rap but they don't always deserve it. But in this case, the Pharisees got together, these particular ones, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So 613 commandments throughout Genesis through Deuteronomy. And there was debates among the rabbis. Well, which is the most important? Which is the least important? Which ones take priority over the others? Sometimes there's, you have to break one or the other because of circumstances. Which one do you keep over the other? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was the final form of the law that Moses gave to the second generation of people that came out of Egypt before they entered into Canaan. So the final, like Moses' final farewell, Jesus quotes from that. But then he says, and the second is like it. So the second is, is equal to it. It's, it's like it. I mean, you can't separate the two. They're two sides of the same coin. First great commandment, second great commandment. You can't keep the first great commandment without keeping the second. You can't keep the second without keeping the first. They go together. One's horizontal, one's vertical. They go together. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The law and the prophets just means the Old Testament. It's a shorthand way of saying the Old Testament. What Jesus said is mind-boggling. He said every 77% of your Bible hangs on two commandments. The first one in Deuteronomy, the second one in Leviticus. The idea that love your neighbor as yourself is a New Testament teaching is utter nonsense. 
It's Leviticus. He quoted from Leviticus 19, the heart of Leviticus, the same holiness code. He's, so, so in other words, for Jesus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Torah itself, they all hinged on these two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. For Peter, when he wanted to teach Gentiles about holiness, he quoted Leviticus. For Christians, Leviticus has become a punchline. We read it, and we read the passages in it that just seem kind of weird to us, and we say, oh, well, that's just, we don't keep any of that anymore. It's not that simple. As Christians, we don't keep the commandments of Torah because they're not our covenant law. That's true. But we do live under the same God with the same outlook as the God who gave those commandments to Israel. The difference is our setting and which covenant we're in. But Leviticus is still the word of God for the people of God. That's why Peter quotes it. That's why the, the New Testament quotes it in numerous places. That's, the Old Testament, it, it's like I said, it's the heart of Torah. It's all about uh, who Israel is as their identity and who God is in his identity. So if we want to see what God is like, in a lot of ways, we can't skip Leviticus. We can't skip it. Now, the only thing worse than skipping Leviticus is proof texting from Leviticus. So the only thing worse than not reading it is to selectively read it. Because when you selectively read it, you have no context, and you end up coming up with all kinds of arbitrary meaning and attempts to keep laws. So for instance, growing up in evangelical, conservative, southern Bible Belt Christian culture. It was just a given, not so much today, but in, in you know late 70s, early 80s, it was just a given that if you had a tattoo, you were kind of sketchy. <laughs> Tattoos, you know, sailors, bikers, and prisoners were people that had tattoos, and people that hated their parents. Those were the tattoo categories. And people, it was just assumed that well, tattoos are on God. Can't have tattoos. So then, you know, well-meaning youth pastors or some read that law. It says, do not tattoo, uh, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19.28. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, no, it doesn't. Because most of those people that said that were upstanding, nice clean-shaven, southern gentleman. <laughs> Look at the verse right before that. The verse right before, and this is why you should bring a Bible each week, by the way, either on your phone or in person. Right before that, right before it says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves, I am the Lord. Right before that, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Right there. Same passage. So every time a clean-shaven, non-sideburn-growing person, especially a man, says no tattoos, every time they say the Bible says no tattoos, you can look at them and say, then why are you a lawbreaker? Why are you ignoring the word of God? How dare you speak to me with your shaven beard and your trim sideburns, you ungodly, 
filthy, you know, you don't have to go all that. But the point is, there is no other prohibition against tattoos in the Bible. This is it. And it's right there with don't shave your beard. So the quandary that that puts Christians in is, so how do we pick and choose? Because that may seem well and good and well and funny and everything, but then other people will say, well, Leviticus 16 through 18 also say a man shall not have sex with another man, and if they do, they'll be put to death. A father should not have sex with his daughter. Siblings should not have sex with each other. So if all of the law is negated, then all of that becomes arbitrary. And having sex with a family member is no more unholy in God's eyes than shaving your face every day. Is that where we want to end up as Christians? No, you can't do that. That's why Orthodox Jews and other groups, you know, skeptics who don't believe in the Bible but they know what it says, they'll look at you and say, You're, you don't even know your Bible, you're a hypocrite. You're picking and choosing which part. I like this law, I'm going to keep that. I don't like this law, I don't like gay people, so I'm not going to you know, keep that law, but I'm not going to keep this law because I like my lobster and I like my other unclean pork and all this stuff. And people will come back and they'll nail you with it. And they'll say, well, why do you pick and choose? Why keep them all or keep it none? But don't do this wishy-washy in between. Well, what, what that is, that's a question of what's called hermeneutics. That's a question of hermeneutics is the fancy word for how you interpret scripture. And there are whole systems of hermeneutics, and there are whole layers of reasons as to why I love bacon-wrapped shrimp, two of the most unholy foods you can think of, according to Leviticus, put together. I love it. And why I have a tattoo, and why I don't have sideburns and a long beard. There's reasons for that, and they're deeply theological, as much as anything, but they're not soundbiteable. They're not proof-textable. In other words, they come from seeing the story of God as a whole and as a cohesive narrative, not from finding a verse in the Bible, pointing to it and saying, that's what I'm keeping, that's what I'm not keeping. But most Christians are not taught how to do that because most pastors weren't trained at teaching people how to do that. Pastors who receive training seminary or Bible college or whatever, they might have learned that themselves, but weren't equipped or didn't give much emphasis to instilling that in other people. How do, what do we do with the law? What do we do with Leviticus? Why is it in our Bible? Am I supposed to read it as like an endurance test? Like God just wants me to, you know, just get through it and you get a stamp on your name in heaven, you know, you get an extra square foot on your mansion. Like, is it like that, or is there something more to it? Well, again, it's the heart of Torah. Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. The other thing, Leviticus is incomplete by itself. It's an incomplete book. The name of the book is Leviticus. That comes from the Greek Septuagint translation, which was called uh, Luetikon in Greek. That got translated in the Latin Vulgate by Jerome into Liber Leviticus, which meant about the Levites, the law of the Levites, and that's where we get our name Leviticus. It's kind of the, about the Levites. The only problem is Leviticus doesn't really say much at all to the Levites. The word Levites is only mentioned once in the whole book. Leviticus is written to priests and people alike, but it's concerned a lot with the things that go on within the tabernacle. So in, their, in that case, it does 
that's why it seems like a, kind of a handbook at times, because it served as something of a handbook for the priests and the people. But its original title was not Leviticus. Its Hebrew title, Vayikra, and he called. The book Leviticus begins with the Hebrew conjunction. It begins with the word and. It is, it is a, it is a Bob consecutive, is, is the uh, Bob conjunctive is the term for it if you're a Hebrew nerd or watching this online. It's a Bob conjunctive. It, it means that, that the letter that starts Leviticus joins it to the word that ended Exodus, or the verse that ended Exodus. It picks up right where Exodus left off. There's not even a break. Grammatically, there's not even a break. Leviticus begins, okay, so let's recap. What is, where did we leave off in Exodus? Well, in Exodus, God gave Moses the tabernacle design of Mount Sinai. The people rebelled before it was even built and threatened that God threatened to remove the covenant completely. Moses intervened. God showed grace, restored the covenant, and then the people obediently built the tabernacle. Moses sets up the tabernacle, this is the base of Mount Sinai, sets up the tabernacle, gets everything in place, anoints everything as it was said, dresses the priests, anoints them, everything's in place, and then Exodus ended with the presence of God descending and filling the tabernacle, the holiness of God, this cloud that kept even Moses from being able to go into it. God came to his new home. God relocated from Mount Sinai, the cloud that was at the top of Mount Sinai, away from all the people, where only Moses could go, he relocated into the midst of his people, right into the middle of them. Israel's camp was holy of holies in the middle, tabernacle around that, courtyard of the tabernacle around that, ring of the sons of Aaron or Levi around that, the priests, and then the camps of the people in all four directions on the outside. Israel's camp was a big holy donut God as the jelly center. That's how you want to look at it. And for God to dwell in the midst of his people, his people have to maintain holiness. And his people don't know how to maintain holiness because they haven't received the covenant. So what God does in Leviticus is he teaches them, here is what maintaining holiness consists of. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it entails, here's what it doesn't entail, and here's how it's different from every concept of holiness you know, both from Egypt and where in Canaan, where you're going. That's what Leviticus is teaching the people. Leviticus is to give the people a window into how God sees Israel living within a pagan world. Israel is going to be his people. They're going to be in the world, but they're going to be apart from the world. They're going to be a shining light to communicate his presence out to the nations so that the nations will look to Israel, see their relationship with God, and want to know that God. That's the plan. And that plan goes all the way back to Genesis 12, if you remember. Leviticus is the continuation of the promise God made to Eve regarding the seed of the woman, and then the promise as refined to Abraham regarding the seed of Abraham and the holy nation and the kingdom of priests. And now it's, it's giving them this is what it's going to be like. You've just got this brand new tabernacle. 
It's the finest materials you can imagine. All the gold and, 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 and treasures of Egypt were taken from Egypt, given to the Israelites by the Egyptians, were taken and used to build this amazing structure. It's basically God's tent. And it's going to go with the people everywhere they go. However, just like with any amazing thing, if you give a kid a Ferrari without teaching them how to drive, bad things are going to happen. If you give a kid a Ferrari, bad things are going to happen, period. <laughs> but especially don't teach them how to drive. Or think of Christmas, people that got hoverboards and filmed them falling and breaking things. Um, you know, if you get something and you don't know how to use it, it can be very dangerous. Well, God's just given Israel the very means by which he's going to dwell in the presence. They don't know how to use it. Leviticus is the user man. Leviticus is going to show them, here's how you use my presence. Here's how you operate with me in your midst. Here's what it looks like when God dwells among his people in the ancient Near East. And that's the key. Leviticus is not what it looks like if God dwells among his people in Charlotte. Because there's a whole covenant that separates us. We're not under Leviticus. We don't keep the Levitical law. However, we study the Levitical law because the Levitical law teaches us the heart of the God that gave it. And the heart of the God that gave it made a new covenant that took what Leviticus was supposed to accomplish for Israel and internalized it and democratized it to all nations in the new covenant worldwide. And that's what we live out today. That's what Leviticus is. So think of a judge. Judges, lawyers, they study old case law. They study laws from the 1700s and the 1800s, some even further back. They study those laws, but they don't hold people today to those laws. They see what was the jurisprudence that led to those decisions. They weigh all of the factors that were going on in the society at the time. They factor in all of the things that have transpired since then, and they basically say, how does the spirit of that law carry forward into today? So that's how you can get laws about carriages and horses and the spirit of those laws being applied to laws today about trains and automobiles. That's how you can you move through it. But it's not easy. There's a reason you have to go to law school. It's really hard. It takes a lot of work. Well, it's the same with Leviticus. It's not always easy. Looking at a law and saying, okay, how does that relate to today? Well, it's not always a one-to-one. -one. Some it's fairly easy. I mean, the, the sexual behavior in the holiness code, all of the do not have sex withs laws, almost all of those are fairly easy for us. But that's only because we live in a culture that just has accepted that as its basis, increasingly less and less. But we still, I mean, it's you know still frowned upon to have sex with your aunt or your sibling, right? So there's still a basis of that. But if you go to a culture where that's never been the case, then that's going to be a stumble. And that's going to be, you're going to have to do some explaining to do. Likewise, some of the laws we look at as really weird about dietary things, people in other parts of the world that have similar dietary laws, they look at it and go, well, yeah, of course you don't eat pork. You know, of course you're not supposed to eat shellfish. So things don't always translate one to one. So that's what we're going to be doing. As we go through Leviticus, we're going to look at what does the text say? This is how you do Bible study. Number one, what does it say? Not what did the preacher say it says. What does it say? In its original language, if possible, if not, in the closest you can get to it. Then, what is it saying about what it says? In other words, okay, this is what the words say. Now, now what does it mean? What is it saying about this? 
And then the third step, what does this mean to me today? How do I put this into practice? That's where people get tripped up when it comes to Leviticus, because it seems so unrelated. However, it's not. It's very relevant. You find that out this year. So come ready to learn, but we're out of time now. If you want seconds, we've got seconds. Uh, tell people about it. Before you leave, on the table there, I've got resources, and I'd love to sell you some. Grab a card. This is what you can give to people if they want to know about this ministry, about what we do, or about possibly doing something like this in your churches. So I'd love to come and speak in churches as well. But we got to go. So have a great week. Happy New Year. And we'll see you next week. Leviticus 1.